podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined once again by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Exactly the same as I was eight minutes ago. That's good to know. That's good to know. In the time between when we last recorded eight minutes ago and recording now, Watford have not only sacked a manager, but appointed a new manager and potentially sacked him as well. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about groups G and H, in this World Cup, we have done A and B, we've done C and D, we've done E and F. These are the last two. And let's jump straight in, Carl, with Group G, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland and Cameroon. Brazil, one of the, I think, strong favourites for this competition. Obviously, five-time winners. The World Cup is their their thing. They haven't won it since 2002. Uh, that is seen as an outrage in Brazil. Uh, they won the um, South American round robin, finishing top six points clear of Argentina, 14 wins and three draws in the group stage for the Brazilians. It is a strong squad, but not a. it's not an all-time Brazil squad by any measure. Now, you do have a great goalkeeper in Allison, a decent goalkeeper in, in Ederson, and you've got Weverton, the Palmieri's keeper, who's actually quite good, uh, but is nothing more than third choice. My concern with them, Carl, is the defence, because Danilo's not very good. Thiago Silva's years past his best. Alex Tellez is not very good. Bremer is good, but unproven at international level. Roger Ibanez is good, but unproven at international level. Eder Militao is good, but not necessarily a starter, unless he plays right back. Renan Lodi is a bit hit and miss, though very talented. Marquinhos is great, but he can't really hold it all together by himself. And of those not in the squad, Alexandro, Dani Alves, Guillermo Arana, Gabriel of Arsenal, uh, Leo Ortiz, Felipe of Atletico Madrid, Emerson, Royal and Lucas Verismo, there's not really any of them that move the needle for me that gets me thinking, well, they have to be in the squad because they'll make a big difference. I think if Brazil fail at this World Cup, it will be this defence that cost them. Yeah, probably so. Um, I think they're another squad in here, which I like because they've been like quite well established as a group for quite a while. So they have a, a, way of, a, pl- a set way of playing. They know how they're going to construct moves. Their build-up is good. Too often I find, like, we've spoken about a few of them already, like major nations going in, and they're, they're seen as very, very good in terms of being a team who could potentially go the distance, but really they haven't got an identity of playing. They haven't really got a clue about the build-up, and they rely on, like, 
either moments or set pieces or that sort of thing. I think Brazil know exactly how they're going to try and play. Whether they manage to play that way is obviously another thing, but I agree. I think the defence is definitely the weak part and primarily the fullbacks, to be honest. I know you absolutely hate Thiago Silva with a, a loathing which rivals you know most Middle-earth brethren and Sauron, um, but in general... We've spoken about Spain, for example, already, and how they have missed another defender who's quite like that in Sergio Ramos. I do wonder whether, if Thiago Silva was not there, this Brazil side would fall apart completely, um, because he is like the constant there in defence, and even if they have to allow for his deficiencies at this point and protect him to an extent and all the rest of it, if you take him out, somebody who does talk and does all organised and does pull Danilo back when he sort of wanders over to the crowd to have a little chat instead of actually focusing on football for once. I, I dread to think what would happen to this defence because I like Marquinhos but he is not the talker, he's not the organiser and the rest of them I could take or leave apart from Ede Militao. Um, Bremer I think is a specialist in one particular role which Brazil do not play. Uh, Renan Lodi I don't think is really improved too much from when I saw him as like an 18, 19 year old too much to be honest that's kind of why he's ended up at Nottingham Forest at the moment um, I, I like a lot of the components of the, the squad role but the defence as a unit is a bit bad to be to be blunt and they need like the rest of the team to play well to protect the defence from having to do too many defensive things um, they're not individually abysmal but they're not like if you had a, a Champions League game and a Champions League attack and they went up against let's say Danny Lowe and Alex Deus and Roger Ibanya, I, I would favour the attack, to be perfectly honest. It would not be very um, very, very much of a close decision either. I do hope that somebody like... I mean, even Gab, uh, Guillermo Araña, I like it, at the Olympics, which was you know, not all that long ago, I really liked him. He was a decent outlet from fullback and he played pretty well overall. Just didn't happen for him at Sevilla whatsoever. I assume mm. Alexandro will go if he's fit. Uh, so maybe he plays left back, and again, that's like a known quantity at least. I would be inclined to, as you mentioned, play Eda Militao right back because he's not going to play at centre back and he's wasted on the bench. Defensively, he's far, far better than Danilo is going to be. Danilo seems to be there now because he can play everywhere. Apparently, by play everywhere, I mean not really play anywhere at all, but be put yeah, anywhere he- in the team because that's what Juventus do. Danilo and his versatility is like James Milner and his versatility. You can put him somewhere, he will stand in that position. It doesn't necessarily mean he can play there, but he'll he'll go there. He'll happily go and stand in the position just to be on the pitch. Um, I do agree with you in terms of because the fullbacks are so bad, they need Thiago Silva as a voice. But as a pairing, I think... Marquinhos and and um, Militao. and Militao would be a significantly better pairing. Mm. I do wonder if Militao right back Bremer and Marquinhos and allowing the left back to bomb forward while the others kind of shuffle into a three would work, but they haven't done that before, so they're not going to try it at this point. Um, midfield, it's a strong group: Casemiro, Lucas Paqueta, Fred. Everton Ribeiro, who stands out like a like a sore thumb. Uh, Fabinho, Bruno Gomeres, others not in the group at the moment. Phil Coutinho, Artur, Danilo of Palmeiras, who's excellent. Gerson of Marseille, Ed Nielsen of Internacional, who I think is a good player and actually might be a better right back than in the options they have. 
and Douglas Louise. Uh, he does favour the Casemiro Fred double pivot, which is one of the more baffling things that that, that they do. But it works for them, so you, you can't really question it all that much. Um, it it's a strong, solid, reliable core of midfield players. Other than Paqueta and Gamerish, if used correctly, there's no match winner there, but there's guys that will keep you in games and a, and give you an element of control. How did we get to the point where, with the exception of Everton Ribeiro, whose name obviously is in the Premier League, every midfielder plays in the Premier League? How did this happen? This did not used to be the case. No, exactly. And, you know, Coutinho obviously as well, Artur... Uh, and and Douglas Luiz, you, you've got Danilo has been in a squad, but he hasn't been capped. Gerson has four caps, and Ed Nielsen has two caps. And other than that, it is all Premier League def- midfielders, bar Everton Ribeiro, who, as you said, his name is in the Premier League. It's such a strange thing. It is such a strange thing. It's also, it's also not necessarily a good thing. Because they're all playing Premier League style football and Brazil don't really play like a Premier League team. So they're having to alter how they play at their international level as well. I've always really wanted them to have a go at a Fabinho Casemiro double pivot because they you know, they pretty always play a double pivot. There's no point in saying, oh, I wish they play a three with Fabinho at the base. It just doesn't happen. They, they keep the double pivot and they'll have either narrow sides and play sort of a 4-4-2 or they'll play an outright 4-2-3-1 or whatever but it's a double pivot and Fred is always there but I, I wonder what the resistance is to playing Fabinho and Casemiro because Casemiro at his best is you know not not the defensive midfielder protecting the defence that you know the Champions League commentators will talk about that's that's not who he is at all um, but letting him off the leash a little bit with a, a more protective player mm-hmm. alongside and behind him would be a really, really interesting thing to watch I think so I am a little bit curious as to why that hasn't happened but I don't expect that we're going to see it now at the World Cup anyway No I don't think so but I do think it will be a pairing that would work very well uh, Casemiro and Fabinho My assumption is that because Fred is a bit more mobile that's kind of why he gets the call because Casemiro isn't the most mobile player Fabinho's not the most mobile player I don't think it would be an issue if you just gave them half the pitch each to cover you know, middle of the park to touchline, but he seems to like Fred's energy. Um, not only is it weird that there are all of the Brazil midfielders in the Premier League, it's also just funny to look at a Brazil squad and see, you know, a player from Nottingham Forest, <laughs> a player from West Ham, and a player from Newcastle, uh, and obviously not in the squad, two players from Aston Villa. Uh, whether that says more about the strength of the Premier League or the weaknesses of the Brazil squad, I don't know. Uh, in attack, we've got Richarlison, more Premier League. Uh, we've got Neymar, we've got Anthony, Rafinha, Vinicius Jr., uh, Vinicius Jr., Matthias Cunha, Bobby Firmino, Pedro of Flamengo has one cap now, and Rodrigo, not in this current squad, Gabriel Jesus, Gabriel Martinelli, Gabriel Barbosa and Arthur Cabral, who just lets the team down by not being called Gabriel. Uh, the question I have for you, Carl, is there were four Gabriels available for selection. Sorry, five Gabriels. Excuse me, 
yes, five Gabrielles <laughs> available for selection. And all of them were left out. Gabriel Grando, Gabriel the centre-back, and the three attackers. What's the issue with the name Gabriel? Is it is it a cursed name in Brazil at the moment? I assume that there is like, you know, a, a next-door neighbour of Chiche who's who has that name. It's, it's, you know, Gabriel Barbosa, Melhorio Silva or something like that. And he has like slighted him, maybe like didn't return his lawnmower when he said he was going to or something like that. And TJ uh, obviously being quite high profile, can't exact retribution in a public setting and really react the way he'd like to and gets caught on camera by his neighbor or something. So everybody else called Gabriel in Brazil, that's you in the mud. There's been some suggestion that Edu might have called Tite and asked him to leave out the Arsenal boys. And if that is in any way true, that is a scandal because it's giving Arsenal an unfair advantage. Uh, maybe it's just that the Arsenal 3 aren't nearly as good as people think. But my assumption is, I, I don't think Gabby Goal will be in the squad. I don't think Martinelli will be in the squad. I, I'm almost certain Gabriel Jesus will make the World Cup squad. I think him, Richarlison, Neymar, Rafinha and Vinicius Jr. are certainties. And then it probably comes down to one of Rodrigo, Bobby, Matthias Cunha and Anthony to fill the other spot. Yeah, I mean, there's possibly room for a couple of them, depending on who else they, they choose to leave out and everything, obviously, with the expanded squad. But I'd be surprised if Matthias Cunha goes, I'll be honest. I know they, they like him and they like to get him involved in that, but in a, a squad where you, you've not quite got as much freedom, let's say, to call up extra names, I be very very surprised if he makes it based on the fact that he's not exploded in the team and is not always in the Atletico team either um, I I think Gabi Jesus will go because of form I think Anthony will go because he'll be probably quite hyped up and quite you know playing very very well at that time possibly uh, I don't actually know I'm not sure I've ever, ever seen Pedro the Flamengo forward at all, to be perfectly honest. So I'm not going to say whether he'll go or not at all. But I think then you're looking at one out of like the second forwards, like Firmino, Cunha, um, maybe Martinelli. I, I think probably Martinelli is for the next cycle, to be honest. But even then, because of where Martinelli plays, obviously, and his best being from the left, you're looking at him going up against Neymar, who does play there if he's not playing through the middle. Richarlison, who is sort of forced his way into being a starter quite frequently for them. And Vinicius Jr., who might be the most informed forward or wide forward in Europe at the moment. So I don't yeah. really see the need to take him, if anything. No, I agree. Um, what are you expecting as a front four? I mean, there's been some suggestion that Richarlison might be the nine with Neymar as the ten, Vinicius and Rafinha as the wingers. If that is the front four, that could be absolutely electric. Yeah, I mean, they do tend to rotate it quite a lot. And so even like if you start with a a 10 or one just off the forward line, you'll still see them with two up front quite a lot. The wide players will be really, really narrow. I think Vinny and Neymar are the two absolute certainties to start. So if you say Vinny is the left notionally one and Neymar is effectively the 10, it does leave them quite a lot of flexibility, to be fair. I think if they think that they're going to be in the penalty area all the time, you probably would start with Charleston or Gabriel Jesus, or Firmino, depending on who goes and who's in good form heading in. 
I would be inclined to start Rafinha because you get the additional work rate and balance in a, mm. a 4-4-2 off the ball. But Lucas Paqueta has been really heavily involved for them over the last like you know, six months or so, yeah. something like that. So you could easily see it being Neymar with Lucas Paqueta off him, at least in the yeah. more... Uh, evenly matched games where they might want a bit more build-up play, that sort of thing. So I think there's two definites and then two which could be just rotated game to game anyway. Yeah, I think Rafinha could be important because of his ability to track back. Because Vinicius doesn't really bother himself with tracking back a lot of the time. I think you want one of your wingers to at least help out a fullback. Uh, and these fullbacks will need help. Um, they're they're For me, they're definitely among the favourites to win the win the tournament, even though it is far from a vintage Brazil. Uh, Moving on then to Serbia, they won Group A of the UEFA qualifying phase uh, ahead of Portugal, my dearly beloved Ireland, Luxembourg and Azerbaijan. I don't really know what to make of this Serbia squad because there's some good players and then some I'm just really not sure of. Uh, not overly certain on any of the goalkeepers. Dimitrovic isn't bad. Um, Vanya Milinkovic-Savage is, is okay, but he's only got the five caps. Um, the defence, Nikola Milinkovic is, is very good. Mithai Nastasic never quite developed. He had a, a couple of injuries, including a bad Achilles one. Um, Stefan Mitrovic of Hetafe is, is not someone I've seen huge amounts of. Um, it, it's not an outstanding group of defenders. They do have talent in midfield. Dusan Tadic, uh, Filip Kostic, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, Nemanja Maxim- uh, Maximovic, who's one that's had a weird career in terms of where he's played. Nemanja Radinic is a good player. But again, I don't see a lot of standout players here. It is very much that the collective is their strength. But the player they will rely on heavily is Alexander Mitrovic. Now, they have three good strikers. Mitrovic, Dusan Vlahovic, who's going to be a problem for everybody in the next couple of years. And Luka Jovic, who obviously had a disastrous time at Real Madrid. He's gone to Fiorentina and it's taking him a bit of time to find anything resembling form. But we know he is a good player. We saw it at Eintracht, although it could be made a case could be made that maybe that was just a fluke season. But in Mitrovic and Vlahovic, I mean, that's a lot of beef up front. <laughs> yes, to put it uh, <laughs> brutally. Um, yeah, they've yeah, got... And, and like, you, you, put, you put Sergei into that group as well, and if they're a front three, you know, one behind two, all you want to do is launch long balls and big high balls and you're going to cause teams problems. I mean, look, the, the, the really good thing is that they're actually set up perfectly to play this way as well because they play three they, they play three wing-backs and an, an arrangement. And that arrangement obviously depends on whether they start with two up front or one just off one or whoever it is because they've rotated that uh, attack and set up a lot. But it's always three with wing-backs. And then your wing-backs, you're basically looking at Philip Kostic on the left-hand side whose job in the world of football is pick up the ball, run some distance and ping over one of the best balls you've seen across from wide areas in many a year. That's what he does. That's what he does for club. That's what he does for country as well. And on the other side, it's probably Zivkovic, I guess. Again, it's, it's sort of one of the 
the the roles which maybe is a little bit up for grabs, but I think Zivkovic is probably the, the first choice if available and playing and everything. So both of them are just get the ball, run, cross, and quite hard working as well. Not defensively outrageously good, because they're more wingers than fullbacks, but they work hard and they, they function quite well and they keep the width and everything. So they do have an out ball. They're not like a, a back five, which gets stuck in a five and can't find their way out because they always have the out ball to a big forward at the very least. The wingbacks always try to get forward because they're wingers. So it's really nicely set up to make the most of beef in attack, to use your word. If they play Mitrovic and Vlajevic up front as a two, I, I honestly think that in this group, at the very least, there's not really too many teams who are going to stop them defensively. If it's just continuous all game long, every time they get the opportunity to build up, it's either played wide and slung in from deep, or they play through the middle and play off the second balls. There's not too many people who can cope with that kind of aggression, that kind of mm. power. The hold-up play that Vlavic is like so good at and working in the channels, and we've seen Mitrovic this year give all sorts of centre-backs a real run with his uh, hold-up play and his link play and everything like that. And it's not just even Milinkovic Savic coming from deep, but Dusan Tadic as well. They'll probably play both yeah. of them. Um, so whether it's a, a 3-4-3 or a 3-5-1-1 and it's like just Tadic off one of the strikers, it's it's pretty good to be honest. They have like a lot of second ball, really good touch, quite good at opening up defences, decent movement between the lines. I, it's not, like you say, an elite 11s, but they have enough good players to make the structure that they have work really, really well for them. And they, but that's, you hit the key point. They just, they know what they want to do and they don't try to do anything else. Like they don't try and play pretty patterns. They just know what they want to do. And I mean, we see Trent on a, on a weekly basis and, you know, you'd look at him and you'd look at Kevin De Bruyne and one of them is the best right footed crosser in the world. But, there's absolutely no doubt that the best left-footed crosser in the world is Philip Kostic, who might just be the best crosser of a ball anywhere in, in the world. He is absolutely so ridiculous with his delivery. And I don't know how it's taken this long for a, a big club to take a chance on him. Do you know, do you know who but, he reminded me of before he's gone to Juventus, and probably even before last year, but who he reminds me of from English football back in the day? And it's a terrible, terrible name to throw out because Kostic has now become like quite a you know a big reputation and a Stigengebjorn not, not a million miles away to be honest Steve Guppy oh that's a shout he used to just get the ball Steve Guppy at Leicester as a wing back and deliver it absolutely beautifully he was not like really rapid he was not like ridiculously skillful but he played like left back left wing left wing back he played wherever you need him to and he could just get the ball move it a little bit and cross and he was so so good at it and I think Kostic is like a lot like that that's a really good shout. That's a really, really good shout. And, and a shout out here to that Leicester team from back in the day where Steve Guppy was outstanding. He obviously went on to... Uh, I think he he was good for Celtic before he got injured. Um, but just a, an absolute wand of a left foot. His ability to put the ball wherever he wanted, was just incredible. Now, the rest of his game let him down. <laughs> um, but, but you know, he, the guy had a long career. He played nearly 20 years, got one England cap. Did. But he he, yeah, he could properly cross the ball. And uh, Kostic is the same. He, he is 
he I was really hoping West Ham would get him when they went for him in the summer because I just really wanted to see him play in the Premier League. Um, but you obviously you're not going to turn down Juventus to go to West Ham, and I'd imagine having Vlahovic there was was a factor in that as well. But yeah, I mean, if they can routinely get the ball wide to Kostic with a lit and only needs a little bit of space, <clears throat> he will put the ball in for Mitrovic and Vlahovic. And God bless any centre back who has to go up against that. Like if Thiago Silva looked old, be like before today. He will look real old trying to defend against those two. That's the because they'll game. just hurl themselves into him. Yeah, and that's the first game. So it's you know another one that I was going to say is very dependent on like Serbia. If you if you're going to pick out a flaw with them, is that as a group they have underachieved at times. Like when it comes to like you know teams where you really want them to be quite good and quite effective in, they've been below par and sometimes if they get a bad result it can spark a series of bad results and they can't mm. really afford that to happen with Brazil being the first group stage game. I actually think they could beat Brazil. I think their game and the way that they set up is good enough to give Brazil a horrible, horrible game and maybe beat them as a result of maybe just power and just sort of just bullying them basically when they get into attack. I'd expect Brazil to have more of the ball and more open play chances and all the rest of it. But I could mm. see a scenario where Serbia actually get a result against Brazil and beat them. Like, But you can also see Brazil turn up and their best players are unbelievably good. Like if, if Neymar turns up and is sensational and Casemiro has one of his all-time games, there's not much you can do to stop that kind of thing and you have to accept that. No. But what Serbia have to do is accept that and regroup and go again for the last two group games because they have a massive, massive chance to get through this group. But if they lose all the goals to Brazil or something like that and fall apart as a unit, as a group, as a bunch of individuals who think they should be doing better and start falling out with each other as they have done previously, they could lose all three. Yeah, that that is the risk with them. They're, they're just the one team that you could see Fireworks. doing either yeah. topping the group or finishing bottom. Because it just, they're a, they're a fiery group of boys and God, it, it would be fun to see them just go out and absolutely dominate Brazil. It really would. Because it could also be the best thing that happens to Brazil, where Brazil sort of, not go into panic mode, but get really, really motivated for the last two games, go and smash Switzerland and, and Cameroon. And then go into the knockout phases and have a, a more difficult run as the second place team and have to peak, to kind of peak over and over and over again. And maybe we do see a great Brazil team. Uh, let's move on then to Switzerland. But worth noting, uh, the um, head coach, Dragon Stojkovic as well, has had his moments as like an unbelievably world-class player in his days and also an absolute oh, yeah. head case. <laughs> so, oh yeah, absolutely. We'll see how that goes. One of one of the great players from the late 80s and early 90s with Red Star and with Marseille, one of the stars of the 1990 World Cup with that incredibly talented Yugoslavia team. I mean, when, when that Red Star Belgrade team came together in the late 80s, before they went on to win the European Cup, they were just terrifying. And he was the star name in that group. Obviously, he won himself won a European Cup with uh, Marseille, didn't he? Which was then taken taken away. But uh, just a great, great player. Um, yeah. So Switzerland they topped 
Group C, somewhat surprisingly, ahead of Italy. Uh, Northern Ireland, Bulgaria, who are god-awful, and Lithuania. The Swiss have some talent and then some issues. Now, Jan Sommer is obviously a good goalkeeper. We've both admired him for quite a while. They've also got Gregor Kobal of uh, Borussia Dortmund, who's injured at the minute, but he's he's very, very good. In midfield, or sorry, in defence, some... Some players that have been around a while. Ricardo Rodriguez, Fabian Schär, new Manchester City centre-back, Manuel Akanji, Nico Alvedi, who has been at Mönchengladbach for a long time. Actually, he broke through there when Andreas Christensen was there on loan, and together they were a really good pairing. Uh, Sylvan Vidmar has been around a long time. Kevin Mbappu of Fulham, solid player. Uh, Eric Comort of Valencia, another player I'm hugely familiar with. That is most likely to be the defensive group for this World Cup. Midfield, midfield you've got Shakiri, you've got Xhaka, they're the captain, vice-captain. Uh, Remo Freuler, now of West Ham, or not of West Ham, of Nottingham Forest. Uh, Dennis Zakaria, Gibral Sau, talented player from Eintracht Frankfurt. Renato Stefan, Fabian Fry, Mikel Abisher. Not massively uh, keen on him, to be honest. Uh, Arden Jashiri hasn't been capped yet. And again, that's probably going... Unless uh, Steven Zuber gets himself back in, that's probably going to be the uh, the midfield group. Up front, Harris Seferovic, Breel and Bolo, uh, inconsistency defined. Uh, Ruben Vargas, inconsistency. Cedric Itan, decent player. Uh, Dan Adoy, Zeki Amundi. Uh, Noah Okafor I do like of Red Bull Salzburg I think he's one with a bright future Andy Zakiri of Basel he's owned by Brighton he's talented Christian Fasnacht uh, fairly run of the mill Alban Ejeti came to England to West Ham did nothing went to Celtic did little now back in um, now back in or back playing in Austria where he'd been before uh, with Sturm Graz, I think. Yeah, he's at Sturm now. Um, it, it's not a, a massively inspiring squad, Carl, but what we know about this team is they work immensely hard together. They know their roles. They're really well drilled, really well organized. They love nothing more than to spring an upset. They're fairly well managed by Murat Yakin, who himself is a, is a legendary Swiss, Swiss player. Mm. Uh, was part of a great Grasshopper Zurich team back in the um, the early to mid-90s and then went on sort of a bit of a journeyman career. Uh, his brother, Hacken Yakin, probably a bit more well-known. Um, they, they're going to be a hard team to beat. And in Shakiri and Seferovic, when those two are on form, they are match winners. I'm not having that. Harris Seferovic, a match winner. About once every twenty-five games, useless lump. About once every fi- about once every fifteen games, he decides that it's time. <sighs> you remember, you spoke badly of him, and he had it. And he, had, and he had his one in twenty, and he had his one good game. <laughs> Straight after, couldn't have timed it better. Um, yeah. I assume it's like contractually written into Switzerland's appearances at major tournaments that they reach the round of sixteen. And no further and no less. And that's kind of what they do nearly every single time. I think like 
three of the last five at the World Cup of, or four of the last five or something like that have been round of 16 and mostly it's like the Euros as well now they got to the quarters last year as well so that was like really good for them to get that far um, they have a squad which I think is capable of going through to the round of 16 but I don't think that they will I think the only reason I think that they won't is because I think like we've just spoken about I think Serbia's team is better set up uh, and is better capable of scoring goals than this one is um, Switzerland are very very reliant on either Shakiri being international Shakiri or set pieces or something going quite right for them you know during during the game which is uh, outside of let's say great build up because they're not a team which are going to be massively reliant on you know, incredibly flowing moves and all the rest of it. Their build-up, their ball progression is actually pretty good, like through to the final third. But it's once they get there, they just they lack a bit of quality. That's that's all it is really. Um, I assume that Noah Elkafor will go as long as he's fit because he is now what let's say Briel and Bolo was five years ago. He's like the new hope who's going to come through and is actually going to be that missing piece in the final third. He's going to be the number nine who is going to be a reliable source of goals and all that kind of thing. They've had a few of these along the, the last like probably 15 years to be fair and none of them actually quite go on and take that next step. So Okafor I assume will go and they will try to see if he can be one of those. He's obviously not a, a nine but someone who can move from a bit deeper and try and get into that final third and make things happen for them. But otherwise... Other than the defence, which I really, really like the structure of and the combinations that they have, this is a bit uninspiring. It is. It is a bit uninspiring. I mean, when you look at that squad, and you look at the two, I suppose, I don't know if the two biggest names is the right way of saying it, but you look at Xhaka and Shakiri. I mean, the only reason they actually have them is because of a war. Both of them would have played elsewhere otherwise, um, but their their parents were obviously forced to forced to move to Switzerland, and they just they just don't produce enough players, Carlos. The simple fact of it, they don't produce enough good players on a regular basis. Um, it is a bit inspiring. Uninspiring. You're right. Normally, they find a way to grind their way through a group. And, and get themselves out the far side. I just don't see them getting out of this group. And to be frank, it wouldn't surprise me if they finished bottom. It really wouldn't. I think the first game against Cameroon is massive for them. Because like, I, I don't see them beating Brazil. Uh, and I, I think Serbia will absolutely mash them, just from a physicality point of view. Like, Xhaka and Shakiri play well when the game is really slow. I just think Serbia will have too much for them from a physicality point of view. As long as Serbia, like I say, haven't like you know imploded at that point when they meet, yeah, I think it's a. I could maybe see Switzerland going toe to toe as a defensive unit and getting a point if that's all they needed to go through. But they have to put themselves in a position where that's enough, and that's what makes that first game, like you say, all important. They have to win that game. <laughs> they do. They do. Right, on to our friends in Cameroon. Um, They topped their mini-group, Group uh, group D, in the second round of the African qualifier. A bit of a surprise, finished ahead of Ivory Coast. And then knocked out Algeria uh, on away goals in the the third round, which again, I think, was a bit of a surprise. Um, 
Andre Onana, the goalkeeper, is very, very good now at Inter Milan, but not yet first choice there. Not doing well there. <laughs> no, not doing particularly well. Um, the, def- the defence screams, please come out of retirement, Joel Matthews. <laughs> Um, <laughs> doesn't really inspire a whole lot of confidence. But I do like a couple of the midfielders. I like Olivier Nitschem. I think he's a solid enough player. I really like Jean Onana. I think he's really, really good. And obviously, Lens have signed him uh, from Bordeaux to replace uh, Decouré, who went to Crystal Palace. Uh, Palace actually looked at Onana as well, and I think originally were hoping to sign both. Um, they do have that. Zambo, who's who's really good and will likely be one of the midfielders. I think him and Onana could be a strong midfield together. Um, uh, that's kind. Of, I mean, Vincent de Bubacar is, is a problem. He's physical. He's hardworking. Carl Tokawakambi is physical. He's hardworking. Uh, Brian Mbomo of of Brentford is is a good player. For sure, Kevin Georges and Kudu came to Spurs for a while, didn't really work out for them. They do still have Chupa Moteng knocking about that they can can call up. Clinton and G, I think he's another one of those failed isn't he another one of those failed Spurs wingers? Was he at Spurs? Yeah, I think he was at Spurs, G. yeah. He was indeed. And Paul Georges and Tep is one of them who for a time looked like he was going to develop into a real player and it just he flatlined and, and never became much of anything. Did get a couple of caps for France back in the day, back in 2015 when he was at Rennes, but just never kicked on from there. Um, I don't see them going through. I think it would take everything going right for them, for them to go through. But I could see them beating Switzerland. I don't know why. I just could see them beating Switzerland. Cameroon will always have a place in my heart because... The 1990 World Cup, yeah. when they went on the pitch and just kicked Argentina all the way back to Buenos Aires, remains one of the most magnificent things that's ever happened in world football. They were absolute lunatics. And obviously you had Roger Mia, who I'm surprised is still not in the squad. <laughs> um, well, he's probably 70 by now. Um, but they were just so much fun. And it was the first real... They were the first real African t- uh, nation to make a proper big impact at a World Cup. First game, they beat the holders with Maradona, and they started the sort of the rise of African football as we saw through the nineties, the noughties, and and you know the the, the tens. And I, I'll just always have a soft spot for for Cameroon, uh, but by Jesus, could they do with Joel Matip in that defence? <laughs> yeah, um, I think. You know, as, a, as an ignorant outsider as I am and not following African football all the time, every time the World Cup rolls around, if Cameroon aren't in, I'm always surprised. And there's, there's no reason for me to be because I'm not following it, but it is because of exactly what you've just said. They were the first ones, and so you kind of assume that they're always going to be there. Therefore, they were World Cup 90 was like my first one as well. It was something that was like massive for me. And this guy just doing this mad celebration by the corner flag. I'd never seen anything like that. And so Cameroon just became this thing in my mind and they always had to be there. Um, I'm glad that they're there. I, I enjoy it when they're there. I, I have quite a few memories of Cameroon actually now thinking about it, including obviously England um, at the world cup as well. So it's a, a, an intriguing thing to see them back. But what I do think about this squad, the, the, the current squad 
is that in midfield, it's again the same as it has been a lot of times. You've got quite a few ball carriers, quite a few players who can break up play, which could be really, really good for them against sides who are uh, either not particularly well organised or who have obvious spaces through central areas in their team. But there's nobody there who I think is going to be absolutely rock solid defensively themselves. Like ball winning and doing the Rodri role, let's say, are two really different things. And I don't see in a side that tends to be playing, it seems, 4-4-2. Just had a quick look back at three or four of their most recent games, or most recent notable games, I should say. It's 4-4-2 or variations thereof. And a double pivot of ball winners is okay, but as we can see by watching Everton through most of the last six months and probably the next six months as well, it doesn't always protect you against teams who are very, very good in the build-up. Um, in attack, I think they might actually be all right. I think if they play like just one of the brutes, um, like um, Vincent Abubakar you mentioned, is like, he's got a bit of movement about him, but mostly it's about his hold-up play, his channel running, that kind of thing. But then also another one coming in from the size like Carl could can be is a pretty decent goal scorer. Brian Mbuma, we know, is a, a decent creator as well on the ball. So they might be all right from that regard in terms of creating their own chances. But he's getting exposed quite a bit at the back as well. And Andrew Anana, as much as he was a very, very good goalkeeper, when he went back in for Ajax, was obviously nowhere near the top of his game after quite a long time on the sidelines after his um, drug span. And in pre-season, that Inter Milan was not good, let's say. No, no, he was not. Um, that the, the, that drugs ban was just such a shame because he was in really good form, and it just completely scuppered things. They they will need him to be at his best. I think he might be a busy, busy boy at this tournament. Um, right. Um, Brazil first, Serbia second, Switzerland third, Cameroon fourth. It, it, the bottom two it could switch. The top two it could switch as well, but. I do think unless Serbia properly implode here, I think Serbia should come through with Brazil. And as we've said, there is a world in which they beat Brazil and top this group. I could also see them beating Brazil and not topping the group because that's just what they are. That's a fair point. They could beat Brazil and not go through. It's <laughs> just mental. Yeah. Um, but they were really consistently good through the qualifiers. They, they were that, no. that one team that just looked a real threat through the qualifiers. I do think they're really well set up. I can see them definitely causing an upset, let's say, in in one of the knockout games, as long as they get there. Mm. Yeah, agreed. They're going to be a pain on the arse. No one wants to play against Mitrovic right now. No one. And no one wants to play, absolutely nobody ever wants to play against Mitrovic and Vlahovic. And if you have the creativity of Tadic, you get the brilliance of Sergei, the crossing of Kostic. If they can get all of that on the pitch together... That is going to be problematic for basically everybody. And they're strong defensively. The individuals aren't great, but the collective is good. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be quite good. Let's move on then to our last group. This is Group H, Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, South Korea. Carol, I think this is probably the most balanced group in terms of, I think any two could come through out of this group. So let's start with Portugal. They finished second to Serbia in the qualifying group and then got a little bit fortunate in their um, backdoor path. They beat Turkey 
And then they beat North Macedonia because Italy had shit the bed in their game against North Macedonia. Um, Bruno Fernandes, the, the kind of the starring role in that final or the, the, the final playoff game. Uh, this Portuguese team is full of talent, full of talent. But I have a serious concern about the goalkeeper because I don't think Rui Patricio is any good. I think they've got good fullbacks, Jao Canseo, Diogo Delot's not great, but he's in good form. Uh, Nuno Mendes is tremendous. I'm not a big fan of Mario Rui, as you know. Ruben Diaz is very good. Thiago Jalo, I really like. I'm not a big fan of Danilo Pereira, and I'm hopeful that David Carmo can work his way into this squad in the next little while. And uh, Goncalo Inacio of Sporting is another one to keep an eye on. Him and Carmo are going to be the future of this national team, either as a two or either side of Diaz and a three. It has to happen. Rafael Guerrero is another one that will probably be in the squad. Pepe might be in the squad. It probably will be in the squad, I think it's fair to say. Um, so, you know, it's it's a strong group of defenders with one or two little liabilities. Midfield, Joe Polini is very, very good. Bruno's great. Bernardo's incredible. Matthias Nunes is fantastic. William Carvalho's a, an old, experienced head. He's fallen off a bit, but he's still decent. is very, very talented. Joe Mario is a grafter who always puts in his best work for the national team. Ruben Neves, we know, has been one of the best midfielders in the Premier League for a while. Uh, Joe Matinho, probably in the squad as you know, one of the leaders. Uh, Renato Sanchez, if he gets a bit of form, might work his way in. And Otavio is an option. There's not going to be many teams that can match what they offer in midfield. Definitely not. This is uh, another one similar to a few we've spoken about of the big nations where the midfield is where they will win and lose or where they will progress or won't or go home early. Uh, because uh, in attack, we know that there's some unbelievable individuals and we'll discuss maybe one or two of them. <clears throat> but in the midfield is where everything is arranged so that, that attack can work as it needs to and the defence can be protected as it needs to. Because I'm with you. I'd, I mean, again, there's like a, a triangle there, which I'm not hugely keen on. It's, um, I think, built to be a little bit more restrained and functional than you might think if you got like Jao Cancelo at fullback you might think well we'll make the best use of him going forward but I think in this case it's probably best for them that they don't necessarily ask him to do all the attacking stuff and actually be part of a, a unit which is a little bit more cohesive and a little bit more restrained sort of mm. thing because that is where their weak spots are really uh, and they are a side which can beat quite good teams but have also shown themselves to be beaten by teams who they should at least match, and then you sort of look at them spanking Switzerland in the in the Nations League, and then they go and lose to them as well. And that's a little bit where they are. If the forward players don't really show or be in really good form, they do have the capacity to suffer quite bad defeats because defence isn't actually that good and is not necessarily capable of keeping clean sheet after clean sheet after clean sheet. So it's it's quite important for them in any given game against a reasonable opponent that. That midfield that they have is perfectly put in place and I'm a little bit hesitant to say that they have it spot on at the minute because I think that they turn to the same faces a bit too often when they might be better off slightly altering how they build up play through the middle. Um, I don't think that people like Vitinha, for example, or even Jean-Martinia, to be perfectly honest, are good enough to be in this Portugal side what they need the midfield to do at the moment. 
I agree. I also think there's another issue, which is that the Bruno Fernandes that we see, you know, when he was at Sporting, when he first went to United and in recent weeks, and the Bernardo Silva that we see at Monaco and at, at Man City, they're not the same players for, for Portugal. Now, there's two reasons for that. One is there's a lot more restriction put on them because they're the midfield, like you said, is to support both ends rather than be given the freedom to be the match winners they could be. Um, and I, I do think, you know, with Bernardo and, and Bruno in particular, they're just, they're hamstrung a little bit in this team. Now, if we look at the attack, you've got João Felix, who's a magnificently talented player, Pedro Neto, who I think we both very much like, Diogo Jota, Ricardo Horta, who's just so much fun for, for Braga, Rafael Leao, who's an absolute star about to explode. Uh, Goncalo Ramos of Benfica, I do like. Andre Silva of Leipzig, I like, but he has been fairly poor for Leipzig. Guedes, a favourite of yours. Trinkio. Rafa Silva has unfortunately retired. And then there's Cristiano. And here's my hot take, Carl. <laughs> They'd be better without him. I think this. By now. He is holding this team back in the same way he holds back his club teams. He did it at United and he did it at, at, at Juve. I think they would be better without him. I think they'd be better with Ramos or Jota as the nine, Liao off one wing and, say, Bernardo off the other with Bruno as a ten, a double pivot in midfield, Canseo and Nuno Mendes given license to get forward. And then, say, Ruben Diaz and maybe David Carmo as the centre-back pairing. I just... The whole team functions to allow Cristiano to score his goals. But he's not going to score enough goals to win them the World Cup. He's not going to be good enough to win them the World Cup. He wasn't great at the Euros. He wasn't great at the last World Cup. I don't care about golden boots. I really don't care about Golden Boots. Tap-ins and penalties don't impress me. I know they won the Euros in 2016, but he was fairly poor for a lot of that tournament, and he was off the pitch when they won the final. I think he holds them back. I think his selfishness, his me, me, me attitude holds them back, and I think a lot of the players pander to that. We've seen Bruno Fernandes, the, the drop-off in form he suffered when Cristiano arrived at United is the same drop-off in form that we've seen over and over again with players that play with him. We saw it with Sancho last year as well, and with Rashford. They both had career-worst seasons. But him out of the team now, and all of them are flourishing, was the same thing at Juve. Multiple players, Dybala being the key example, was probably the best player in Serie A. He arrived, Dybala fell off, and didn't even get a new contract from Juve. I, I just don't think he's he's... I just don't. I, I think a stronger manager just says to him, "It's it's it's over, it's done." But he's so egotistical and so determined to get to two hundred caps and you know obliterate all all scoring records that I think he, he's putting himself before the team, and it just it's hurting the team. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fairly well accepted by now, to be honest. And the silly thing about it is that he could probably probably be as effective in terms of goals to games if they used him in the last 25 minutes of matches and they would probably have a 
a better platform for the game by that point if they were had a much more mobile, much more aggressive attack. I mean, you mentioned Jota through the middle. Yes, Jao Felix as a nine as well with Fernandes a much higher ten would work really well as well because of yeah. how, um, how much he loves to get behind the forward. So I think either of those with Liao on one side and yeah, we could go over and over this team. Yes, it would work better, but in the absence of that, because he is going to start, I think that someone like Jao Palinha mm. would be almost a must-start for me in centre midfield for them just because of how aggressive yes. he is, how much of a ball winner he is. If you have him and Ruben is your two, I think that gives you enough of a balance of mobility, aggression, physicality, but also technical ability. So, yeah, it, it shouldn't yeah. be that much of a, a difficult switch, to be honest, because Carvalho and Neves are still two of the most regularly starting players if they play the double pivot. If it's a three, then maybe it's a little bit different because they put Silver as one of the eights, for example. But if you just want to be functional and just want to give a supply line, I think just Palinha. It probably solves quite a few of their issues, to be honest. He's not the most outrageously talented, but he would work a bit better in the team, I think. Yeah, he's very good at what he does, and that's kind of what they need, is just someone that does their job really well and gives them that defensive solidity. And he's like you said, he's, he's got good aggression as well. Uh, the best thing that could probably happen to them is Cristiano I don't know, breaks his foot or something in the first game. And and they're just able to play their best eleven because in that case, the defense probably, and in particular the central defense, probably stops them from being good enough to win the World Cup. But I mean, not most teams have at least one hole that would be theirs. I mean, Rui Patricia's not great, but you know he, he might just catch a bit of form for a couple of couple of games, but. Everything else is there. Like that is that is a, as strong a midfield group as anyone has. The fullbacks are good. The attackers are outstanding. And I agree with you. Like if he would just accept coming on with 15, 20, 25 to go, I think I would make them one of my favourites to win it all. But he's going to start and he's going to hurt this team. And it's going to cost them, I, I think. And Unfortunately, Fernando Santes is, is a good manager and has obviously done a, a great job with Portugal in, in that he won the Euros. And, and that can never, ever be taken away from him, is that he won the Euros. But he has pandered far too much. And by all accounts, he is gone after this tournament. So maybe the next manager will come in and, and show a bit more, a bit more strength towards, uh, towards Cristiano. Um, but then public opinion is still children on Twitter that, you know, he's still the best player in the world. Um, anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. It's just a shame because this is probably the, the last, this is the last World Cup in their prime for Bruno and for, for Silva, which, you know, it should be a time for them to go and really, really show what they can be. Let's move on then to Ghana. So, um, Ghana came through out of Group G of Stage 2 of the African qualifiers ahead of South Africa, Ethiopia and Zimbabwe. They would then go on and defeat Nigeria on away goals. A little bit fortunate in how that happened because they were substantially outplayed, I thought, across the the second game in particular. Um, Lots and lots and lots of young talent available to Ghana. And they've done a really good job at, at securing some new talent. So Tariq Lamptey has 
made the change to Ghana, made his international debut. Uh, Mohamed Salisu, who obviously is Ghanaian by birth, but had been holding off playing at international level, he is now committed to the group. You obviously got Thomas Partey in midfield, uh, who's kind of the, the biggest name there, but Mohamed Kudus is in tremendous form for Ajax at the moment. You've got Kamaldine Suleimana, who's immensely gifted. You've got Abdul Fatoue Ishahaku Ishahaku, um, of Sporting, another very, very gifted player. You've got the AU brothers still knocking around. Inaki Williams, long time linked with Liverpool. He's made the switch and made his debut recently. Um, Antoine Simagno of Bristol City, talented player. He's just made his debut as well. There's there's talent in this squad, Carl. There there really is. There's a there's a team forming from this group. There, there is basically half a team of exceptional players here now, and the, obviously the very very difficult thing they'll face in terms of this World Cup is integrating them into a team in a shape which works cohesively without annoying all the players who have been like quite established and got them to the World Cup in the first place. Because you still need the rest of that uh, team and that squad obviously to be fully on board so I think it would be pretty harsh and hard to do to just start the World Cup with Ampty, Salisu um, probably Wusu Inyaki Williams and they're all into the team straight away and that's like their second cap or third cap like that's that's a pretty harsh thing to do to the people who have got you there um, but on the other hand it could actually make them individually good enough to win a match here uh, I think it's a very, very tough group for Ghana, to be honest. I, I, I don't expect them to go through at all, but I think that these players that they brought in at least gives them a platform to have a chance, even if it is calling on maybe two or three of them off the bench. I think it's really important that they establish uh, a centre-back partnership as quickly as possible, whether that's uh, Marty and Sally Sue or maybe Diku and, and uh, Sally Sue. Whichever one it is, is basically going to have to work near seamlessly in tandem with each other. And it, like I say, it, there's limited, obviously, time to get that to work. I think they've got two friendlies and then obviously straight into the group stage. So it's possible that they can cause a bit of an upset because they have some unbelievably gifted individuals. Um, I'm really keen to see how Inyaki does. I presume he's going to go, obviously, to the World Cup now. But you mentioned him, Kudus. He's the one. He's the one who could be the difference between them staying in the game because he sort of fashions a chance for them to score a goal and actually taking a, a surprise win off somebody or anything at all. He, he is such a class player. I, I just love watching him. He tends to play a bit deeper for Ghana so far than he does for Ajax at the minute, but wherever they put him on the yeah. pitch, he's probably going to be at the centre of all their build-up play anyway. Yeah, he's an impact player no matter where you use him. Whether you use him in midfield, you use him wide, you use him as a 10, or you play him up front. He will find ways to impact games, and his talent is outrageous. Um, him and him and Suleimana are just—they're—they're they're two players to keep very close eyes on. They're two players I would imagine Liverpool have scouted extensively uh, because they fit the profile of of what we look for. Um, looking forward to seeing how Ghana do. Um, do have question marks over the goalkeepers, largely because I'm ignorant to the goalkeepers. Don't know much about a forey. Uh, Nuruddin or Wallacott, who plays for um, for Charlton. None of them hugely experienced. Uh, Thirty seven caps between the three, no more than twenty four. But 
It'll be interesting. I'm also interested to see how Gideon Mensah does, because if you remember a few years ago, he was very highly regarded. And he never quite kicked on and got himself to the next level. Um, but he, he's he's a solid enough player, and he is talented. He's still only 23-24. On um, then to Uruguay. One of my sneaky dark horses, not to win it, but to just have that a decent run, because it is the last hurrah for the, the old generation. So Muslera will likely retire after this World Cup, uh, certainly from international football. Um, Suarez, I think this is his last go. Uh, I'd imagine Cavani it will be his last go. Um, Christian Stuani, Diego Godin, possibly Seb Coates as well, though he's a little bit younger. And Martin Caceres, almost certainly done after this. But there's a lot of good younger players in this squad, Carl. Um, Ronald Arejo has been outstanding for Barcelona since he was given a chance. Oliveira and Vigne, the two left-backs, are both really good. I really like Bentancur. I, I like uh, Lucas Torreira. I love Fede Valverde. I love Manuel Agart. Um the Diaz, I'm not even going to pronounce it. Georgian, the fellow who plays for Flamengo, he's really, really good. Amazed me that he hasn't come to Europe. He's really, really good. And then up front, you've got Facundo Palestri, who's really gifted. I don't know why United won't give him any kind of opportunities. Obviously, Darwin. Uh, Martin Satriano is another very talented one. Diego Rossi's very talented, but a little bit infuriating. It's just a very... It's a well-balanced team, and they sort of have meshed the older players with the younger players quite well. I, like I said, I don't think they can win it, but I could see them getting out of the group and being an absolute nightmare in the knockout phases. Uh, I think if you get them in a knockout game, yeah, they'd be a, a horrible pain in the ass to play against. It would be <laughs> everything that you expect playing against Uruguay, basically. They will make it any kind of war that they need to. They are still super aggressive, even though there's like been a big turnover, especially in that midfield department. You think of all the the ones that they seem to have for about eight World Cups in a row there, uh, which have all been turned over now. And even a few of the players who are still involved, and not just me like Suarez, but you mentioned like Stuani. He was never even good enough to start back in the day. So how he's still involved, I don't know. It's because he's still part of that ridiculous group who will just fight and work for everything and everything was just going to be gone through an absolute scrap to get there, I think. Even like Benera and all the other ones who they had were exactly the same. They weren't all necessarily the best players and wouldn't even start. But as soon as they came on, they would be like backing up everybody else all the time. And this current group is still pretty much the same, to be honest. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit more speed and technique, uh, I'd say. Probably replaced a few of the people like Ladero and all those kinds of ones who were like almost really good, but not quite in the end. Uh, and I think it's still a little bit unpredictable how they'll line up. I assume they're going to go with the back four, but they have played a three quite a few times as well. If like Jimenez has still been in the squad, that kind of thing. So there's a few question marks defensively over who will be uh, fit and available, obviously, to play. And Aarho can play as a third centre-back or right-back for them as well. So I would put him at centre-back now and just leave him there because that's where he needs to be and is probably the best one that they've got. Yeah. But they also maybe have one or two gaps in the team let's say at right back so maybe he has to fill that out of necessity but overall I think if they're asked to defend quite a lot they'll struggle I think if you know they come up against teams who are quite dominant and who pin them back and 
you know, make, they'll make it a fight and they'll make it aggressive, but I think that they will struggle to get upfield enough. I don't see that there's enough speed through, you know, the midfield and final third phases. It's still quite reliant on aggression and like two or three people being really good at ball carrying. Obviously, people like Bentancur and Valverde, they're like Champions League level quality players. There's, there's no question about them. And Valverde this, this season is maybe one of the top five, six midfielders in general uh, in Europe at the moment. He's been sensational. Yeah. So get a couple of people like that on the ball as often as possible. And yeah, you've got a chance. But I do I do worry a little bit about the lack of uh, transitional play and ability to withstand sustained attacks, let's say. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if, if Arejo's right back, you're probably looking at Jose Jimenez and Godin at centre-back. Godin is, or, or Cuates as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, Godin is, is 36. Uh, Cuates is, is 31 and he, he is slow. <laughs> like he, he was, was slow when he was, he was 21. <laughs> he is, he is painfully slow now. And Jimenez just, I mean, his career has been blighted by injuries. He's still somehow managed almost 80 caps. Um, despite the fact that he plays about 15 games a season at club level. But the one thing you can never doubt with this group is is their commitment. I mean, they're just, they will absolutely go to war for that shirt. And whatever they're asked to do, they will do. And they will do it until they can't run anymore. Now, obviously, Diego Alonso is not the, um, not the manager they had for many, many years. But he has kept that spirit, kept that mentality and mindset while bringing along some of these younger players. And I just want them to do well because I want the likes of Suarez and Godin and, and uh, Muslera and Cavani in particular, I want those four to go out in a high, you know, whether it's a quarter final and they lose a bit of a heartbreak or whatever. I want them to go out reminding people of what they once were. And obviously I want Darwin to do really, really well at this World Cup as well. Uh, let's move on then to the last team in this group. So that would be South Korea. They finished as runners up in Group A of the African or the Asian third round uh, behind Iran, ahead of UAE, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. A couple of very well known players here in Hyung Min Sun, who is their superstar, uh, Kim Min Jae, the centre back at Napoli, who was so impressive against us. There's a couple of others, Lee Jiang Sung of Mines is a decent player. Huang He Chan of um, of Wolves is a, is a solid player as well. Huang Ojoy of Olympiacos, owned by Nottingham Forest in some sort of money, money laundering deal. Um, this is another team like we talked with Japan on the last one. They're really well set up. They're really well organized. They're technically good. They're proficient in how they build up and, and move the ball. Um, Paolo Bento's been there four years now as manager. There's maybe a little lack of physicality outside of the centre-backs, but they'll be they'll be tough. They'll be tough to beat for, for everybody. Yeah, I actually like Korea to go through, to be honest, out of this group. I think that they have the consistency in their play and their... Um, reliability let's say in in how they perform basically each time i don't think that they're as good as japan you know man to man and as a team but i just think that 
I'm not even sure they're actually better than either of the other two groups individually. Uh, sorry, the other two nations in this uh, group individually. Uh, it's just that I could see Cameroon are obviously right at the beginning of a cycle now with all the players that they've brought in, and that could be quite difficult to get any kind of consistency across even three games from. To be honest, they might win one but then be quite poor in the other two. Uh, Uruguay, similarly, I could see winning any one of the three games, but then being beaten in the other two. Maybe Korea, just by virtue of being a bit more set up well, organised, um, very clear in their approach, very familiar in probably what the starting 11 is, or at least I'd say eight of this starting 11, maybe even nine of them. It's it's really simple and straightforward to see what they're going to do. And obviously they're going to need, like I would say, three, four of those key players to really perform. But if they do, I could see them probably getting, let's say, the four points that they might need to go through. I don't honestly think that they would go through if they were in a slightly stronger group or if there were two good sides in the group. But they might just have enough within this squad in terms of the familiarity and the individual ability of two or three of them that you picked out. A couple of them, Kim Jong-won, I would say, is another one as well. He'd probably be centre-back alongside uh, Napoli's Kim. He was at... um, Oh god, what are they called Guangzhou, Guangzhou Evergrande for ages when the CSL was like you know half decent with lots of money and all that sort of stuff. He was one of their mm. most consistent and really really strong performers there. He nearly came to Europe a couple of times, but he's back in Korea now. Assuming it's like him, for example, and Kim Min Jae centre backs, you've got two really experienced players there. Kim Min Jae is really powerful in the air. Kim Young Won really good on the ground midfield. You already know who you're going to be building through. They're a little bit reliant on Huang up front, Huang Uijo. Uh, for goals as the as the centre forward yeah. and obviously people for Son to play off and all the rest of it but other than that I you know maybe if they get Son and him playing really well and then your, your centre back partnership are in very good form I could definitely see them getting at least one win and maybe another draw if you just need that to go through yeah I the, the... I think this group is really well balanced. I think it's really open. Um, I, I, it would be obviously a shock if Portugal didn't go through. But I do think you can make real cases for any of the other three to go through as that secondary team. Now, I, I'm, I would back Uruguay. Um, but like you said, there is they, they could easily win one game and lose two others. I mean, Uruguay, are just they, they're going to be weird. They... They could lose to Korea, beat Portugal, and then lose to Ghana and end up going out. That's just how they are. Um, But I'm going to back Uruguay. So I would have Portugal, Uruguay, Korea, and Ghana. And by the sounds of it, you'd have Portugal, Korea, Uruguay, and Ghana. I think it would be very, very tight for that second spot. I actually think Uruguay will beat Korea in the game between each other. But if Korea have already beaten Cameroon beforehand, then... They played Portugal last. If Portugal have already got six points and gone through rotations, etc., I think it just could work out okay for for Korea to go through as the second side here. And that's it. That is us done with the eight groups, four podcasts. You can listen to them all on Anfield Index, obviously, as you are now. Carl, do you have anything else you want to touch on before we go? Unless you want to get into the whole thing of why it's in December again. No. Absolutely not. No, God, just leave it alone. It's 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 just stupid, and we all know it's stupid, but it is what it is. Uh, right, we will leave it there. Uh, thank you all for listening. Make sure you follow Carl on Twitter, at Carl Matchett. Read his work on The Independent, and this is Anfield. Follow Guy, at Guy Drinkle. Follow me, at EPL Index. And we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.